This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is observing Yom Kippur today. She will be back for free for all Friday tomorrow. Well, as if contracting COVID-19 isn't bad enough, according to the World Health Organization, one in four people infected with the virus experience a post-COVID-19 condition for at least one month. One in 10 people experience symptoms lasting beyond 12 weeks. A newly released report by Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table has found between 57,000 and 78,000 people in the province had or are currently experiencing one of 200 post-COVID-19 conditions following their initial diagnosis. Joining us now to talk about what is known as long COVID-19, Science Table member Dr. Fahad Razak, internal medicine physician at St. Michael's Hospital. Dr. Razak, thanks for joining us. Hi, good to be with you. Let's talk about the symptoms experienced by long COVID patients. Are there really 200 of them? The, the 200 is a pretty broad number, and, you know, it highlights that some of the symptoms can be distinguished, uh, can be hard to distinguish from other things that make people feel unwell. But there are these core symptoms that seem to be reported by a lot of people, and they include things like fatigue, which can be really severe or disabling, Um, persistent shortness of breath, uh, problems with their heart rate, like racing hearts, um, pain in muscles or joints, and trouble thinking clearly. Uh, A lot of people will describe this as brain fog. Okay. Now, how are these, or how are their lives affected by this long COVID syndrome? And do they technically have the virus when they are experiencing these symptoms, or are they virus-free? Yeah, so the the symptoms um, seem to be driven by uh, parts of your body responding to the virus uh, after the virus has already cleared or damage that's lingered from that initial viral infection. So two kinds of ways it can happen. So the, during that initial infection, the virus may have infiltrated your heart or your lungs and caused damage, which leaves you with persisting symptoms, or it's part of the abnormal response. Your immune system ramps up or other parts of your body start to respond abnormally to the initial infection, and you develop those symptoms. And that's what seems to persist for that, especially we think about 10%. And that's a conservative number. We'll continue to have these symptoms lasting many months or longer. I guess that's what you don't know, right, beyond the period of 12 weeks, uh, because COVID is so new to the world uh, as to whether these symptoms might end up being chronic. Yeah, this is the real concern. And, you know, there's a couple of ways to look at this. So the, the studies that have looked at the very, very earliest waves of COVID-19 that spread through China have followed people now for 12 months. And, the, and they're finding that still around 10% of people have some symptoms which, which can be disabling. And, and in that study, for example, about 10% of people weren't able to return to their normal work. And this is 12 months out from the initial infection. Now, 
We also have other coronaviruses that have swept through uh, previously, for example, SARS. It seems to be similar in SARS as well, although, of course, corona, uh, COVID-19 is on a much, much larger scale. I'd like to open the phone lines up as well. If you're listening, if you are a relative, a loved one, a friend has had COVID-19 and is still experiencing symptoms long after you've been free of the virus, I'd like to hear from you. Uh, if you would like to share your stories, I'm sure it would be appreciated by everybody else who's listening. It's a good information segment about COVID-19 and how it can manifest itself beyond the initial virus. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. I'm with Dr. Fahad Razak, internal medicine physician at St. Mike's, and also a member of the Ontario Science Advisory Table. What was the motivation, doctor, in producing this report about the long COVID patients? So uh, a couple of important reasons why we did this. The first is that, um, you know, in, in essentially recent memory for people in Canada, we have not had an infection sweep through the population in this way. So, you know, in Ontario alone, we're looking at about 600,000 people uh, who were infected at some point, and in Canada, about one and a half million people. And so when something is that common, you have to ask this important question of where does it leave people after the infection? And, you know, for most people, the, the, the answer is after a couple of weeks of hard recovery, most people will be okay. But then there is this group, the long COVID, uh, people who develop long COVID. And, and because the infection was so common, we're talking about, as you said, in Ontario, you know, our conservative estimate, it may be higher, is 57,000 to 78,000 people in Ontario. And in Canada, that's probably around 150,000 people. And it's really important to think about how to support individuals like this. What does the medical system have to do? But importantly, some of these individuals can't go back to work. They may have compromised ability to do work, may need support with their family, may need disability or income insurance. And so how do you support them? And that's a really important question. And it's not just physical symptoms either, I, and you alluded to this as well, but there there can be issues around depression uh, and mental health that, w- I, you know, I would suspect might be, uh, might affect your um, your work and being able to actually do your work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is one of the big intersecting areas of the illness, which is the mental health overlap with people who have long covid um, obviously, we know that anxiety, depression were major issues in society even before COVID-19 uh, came through. But now you have a group of people who will also either have worsening symptoms or new symptoms of anxiety and depression. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll mention a couple of other important things for your listeners. The first is that we we knew that the initial infection with COVID-19 tended to be much worse in older individuals. Mm-hmm. The thing that's scary about long COVID is that it can affect any individual, young or old, it can affect individuals who were totally healthy before they got infected. And even individuals who had very mild or no symptoms during the initial infection can start to then develop these long COVID syndrome uh, symptoms weeks to months later. And so that's why uh, it's really important to think about prevention. And, you know, I, I just want to say to your listeners, there's only one thing that prevents long COVID, that's vaccination. So if you don't get infected, you can't develop long COVID. And if you get vaccinated and if you're one of the unlucky few who does develop an infection afterwards, who has a breakthrough infection, your chance of developing long COVID is still reduced probably by about 50%. So 
it's enormously protective against long COVID. You see, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about those who are asymptomatic with COVID-19. Do Does any of this population end up getting the long COVID? And you're saying yes. They do, unfortunately. And this is my, you know, my advice to younger individuals, people in my age range or younger, who have not been vaccinated because they think, you know what, I even if I got COVID-19, it's going to be mild. You may be right but you're still at risk of developing long COVID. Of course, you're at risk of developing severe disease initially as well, but you have to worry about long COVID. And, you know, this is preventable. We have highly effective prevention with vaccines. Um, This can be very disabling. And I'll, I'll mention that I have a couple of colleagues in the healthcare system who are among the highest energy, healthiest individuals I know who got infected early in the waves when there was no vaccine and who had really disabling symptoms. And these are people who, you know, probably never took a sick day in their lives, had no health conditions, very active, and were just flattened by this. It's possible then that you could have long COVID uh, without ever having been diagnosed with COVID if you were asymptomatic to start with. It's absolutely possible. And, you know, there's two reasons why that may be. It may be because um, you were asymptomatic Um, and you never got tested. And it could be because early in the pandemic, we did not have enough tests to go around in Ontario uh, and in Canada. And so there was very strict criteria in order to get tested. And there's people who probably had symptoms and would have been tested now who weren't able to get tested then. So unfortunately, there's going to be people who don't have that objective test to say, yes, you had COVID-19 but did have the infection and then will develop long COVID. Uh, you know, before I say goodbye to you, and I know you do have to leave here by 1215, uh, Dr. Rizak, uh, any final words for our audience? I know the message really, this is more incentive for those who are vaccine hesitant to get the shots. Yeah, I would say a few things. You know, we're still talking about a significant percentage of Ontario and of Canada, of the Canadian adult population, and, and kids over the age of 12 who are eligible for one of the safest preventative therapies that I've ever seen in my medical career, this vaccine. There's, of course, uh, risks that are very, very rare for individuals with this vaccine, but overwhelmingly, most people come through with this vaccine with very strong protection against COVID-19. That's going to protect you in the short term against things like what we're seeing in Alberta now with people getting sick and flooding into hospitals but it's going to protect you in the long term against things like long COVID. So please get vaccinated. And the second thing that I'll say is that this is a condition where we're still learning what long COVID is. And so there's a lot of people out there who had symptoms who felt that the healthcare system didn't recognize them for having long COVID and didn't care for them. And I would say that we on the healthcare side, we're improving, we're trying to gain recognition of this. So, you know, please be patient with us. Please see your family doctor if you think that you're having symptoms. And that's the start of the process. Thank you very much for your time today. Great to be with you. Dr. Fahad Razak is an internal medicine physician at St. Michael's Hospital. He's also a member of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. Dr. Peter Uni joins us now. He is the scientific director of the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table and has become a regular guest here on Fightback. Dr. Uni, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me again. I know you heard some of uh, what your colleague, Dr. Razak, was talking about there. Uh, I didn't ask him 
If long-term COVID, long COVID, is associated with all variants of the virus and whether it potentially has more severe symptoms um, related to the Delta variant? Yeah, we actually don't know whether uh, there would be any change in the risk or in severity now with Delta, but it's indeed just, it holds for everything. All the different variants, long COVID is here to stay. Um, It was an issue at the beginning and it's still an issue now. I want to make sure our Zoomer radio listeners know that uh, if you did suffer some long COVID symptoms after initially being infected, we'd like to hear your stories. If you have stories of relatives or loved ones, numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Uni, um, what do we know about how long it lasts? We have some of the statistics from the World Health Organization. Uh, one in four for at least a month, one in 10 lasting beyond 12 weeks. Mm. We actually don't know. You know what the issue here is? We only have been faced with this virus for roughly 18 months. Nobody knows what's coming next. And what we know from SARS, uh, quite a few of us remember the SARS pandemic at the beginning of the millennium is, that there are people out there who have symptoms for years, actually. And uh, luckily, it's relatively rare, but uh, we don't know what's happening here. That's one of the issues. We don't know the prognosis, you know, for those people who are unlucky where it just continues to uh, go on and on. Uh, what uh, What is actually associated, you know, with these long-term disease courses? And the other part, um, I'm not sure whether Fahad talked about that, is right now we don't know yet how to treat it. And all of that, you know, I know we sound like a broken record, but Mm -hmm. it's actually just really, really important for people to understand that. Even if you're lucky, you don't end up in hospital, that's a real risk that we're talking about. And we don't know how to treat it right now, but we know how to do prevention. And the prevention is, as, uh, as Fahad actually just said before, it's so absolutely simple and so safe all the theoretical considerations that people still have who are not vaccinated yet regarding the safety of the vaccine, they just basically disappear relative to all the issues you have with this virus. Your alternative is the virus, vaccine or virus. Make your, know your selection. How much of an incentive uh, could knowing about long COVID be for those who are vaccine hesitant? <clears throat> I don't know. Look, what really would be helpful is for all those who are out there who still haven't received the vaccine to talk to somebody who either actually experienced how it is to uh, be hospitalized or who experiences how it is um, to to have long COVID. Uh, As Fahad, you know, it's the same for me as well. I have colleagues out there, you know, completely sportive, fit as hell, much fitter than I am, etc. Completely knocked out, uh, some of them now for more than a year. That's the reality, and there's such a simple solution. Yes. Let's go to June in Etobicoke. Um, I think we're about to put June on hold so that we can get her story if she's available here on Fight Back. And again, we're with Dr. Peter Uni uh, from the Science Advisory Table. June, uh, you experienced COVID. Hi, June. Just turn down your radio and tell us your story. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. (laughs) Okay. Yes. So, um, so what is your story, June? My my story is that I was tested positive in May 
but I'd had my first injection in March, and um, I was uh, very surprised because I thought I, I had a slight runny nose, and but my son had had it, uh, the COVID, and um, I just thought I would go along with my other son was getting tested, and I tested positive, and uh, but uh, I wasn't really sick and um, at all with it, unfortunately. But uh, then on July 1st, I had to have an emergency eye operation, and Dr. Giovadoni at St. Mike's Hospital, uh, I had to be tested for the operation, and he told me I was tested positive. Well, I had a fit, but anyway, um, he told me after, no, they had checked. I'd had my two vaccinations, and um, this can happen. It can linger in your body. And, boy, that just was wonderful to hear. And I, he said I wasn't contagious to anybody else and not to worry about it. Okay, and but I was how, how... fine, and he went ahead with the emergency oh, operation. And it's a wonderful hospital, <laughs> and I'm so happy that finally it's come out. And, and you have this, that doctor on today. Okay, great. So, June, how, for how long then did you experience symptoms of COVID? Well, um, I, I haven't been retested since July 1st. So, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm fine. Well, and I'm glad it all worked out well for you. Thanks for sharing your story. Yes, so I thought you would like to know. And, and I hope other people hear it because I've told them this, and everybody is in shock. Yeah. They, they couldn't believe, they didn't know it. And, and I'm so glad you're your program. I always listen to oh, you. Oh, thank you, June. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you. So, Dr. Uni, there's a situation uh, where somebody who'd received one shot of vaccine, and June was obviously doing it on the timeline that was offered to all of us, uh, age-specific, still getting COVID and then still having it in her system. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. So first of all, what we also need to be aware of is that if you have had one dose, this worked really beautifully against the Alpha variant, the previous variant, you were really well protected. Against Delta, one dose is next to no dose. You know, it's the first dose. It's important, first big step. But you can still get infected and you can still end up in hospital uh, at a much higher rate as compared to when you have had two doses. So if you have had one dose, by all means, get the second one now. Uh, I know we need to wrap up this segment, but I do want to ask you, since I have you on the line, it's Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the Science Advisory Table. Let, let's talk about the seven-day rolling average in the province of Ontario. How are we making out? The, they're, they're, the number overall is dipping, even though today's number was a bit higher. Yeah, we're actually uh, right now just having a flat curve, which is excellent news. It's much better than I expected based on what we saw about two to three weeks ago. What's the reason for that? The, what we saw about two to three weeks ago was probably the impact of the uh, last long weekend. So I'm a bit scared about the impact of this long weekend. Even so, I saw people really being careful out there, which is excellent news. So what we just have right now is roughly 700 to 720 cases per day on average. You know, don't be irritated by this random variation that we see a bit, meaning we're really below the 1,000 or 1,200 that could have happened, you know, uh, at the moment 
with the school opening. If we now keep the ship as it is right now for a while, then the next thing we will see is uh, basically the um, impact of school reopenings. We would see that about two to three weeks after we start to open schools. So we, before we then, you know, start to get excited, if things still look quite okay, we need to wait probably about four weeks after school opening to make sure that we see the full impact of school reopening. That's the next step. And what are your thoughts about the push in Toronto and the region of Peel to get to 90% double vaccinated? Oh, absolutely. So what we see everywhere and here as well, you know, that's the reason it goes so well because of this combination of people being careful, some measures plus vaccination. We just need to make sure that we can get higher. If we want to get out of this trouble that we're in, we really need to make sure that we slow down the pandemic and that all of those who can still burden our healthcare systems are actually doubly vaccinated. As always, thanks for spending some time with us, Dr. Uni. Thanks a lot for having me again. Dr. Peter Uni is the Scientific Director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up next, reaction to the number one federal election issue in the GTA. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. I'd like to read for you an email before we get to our next segment. If you're a regular listener to Fight Back, uh, on a few weeks ago, a woman named Crystal called in. Uh, we were talking about anti-vaxxers, and she told us about her uncle who was infected with COVID and was put into a coma along with both his adult children. Well, Crystal has sent me an email this morning saying that, unfortunately, her uncle passed away last week and his daughter is not doing well. Her lung has collapsed. She is at high risk for a cardiac arrest. On top of all this, now lawyers have been brought into the matter to be able to bury her uncle. The cemetery needs next of kin, uh, which has to be blood-related to sign for him. She says that they have explained both of his children are in a coma, and his wife passed away 10 years ago. Uh, The hospital has written a letter to the cemetery also informing them about his children, and from what it looks like, it could take a month before they are able to have her uncle buried, and his children have no idea they lost their dad and his daughter is not doing well at all. Crystal writes that she is sharing this with all of us here who listen to Fight Back, just to put it out there that the decision not to get a vaccine can affect not just the individual, but the entire family. So thank you, Crystal, uh, for sharing your family's plight and uh, reminding those who are vaccine hesitant to, you know, talk to your doctor, talk to an uh, an expert of, or somebody you trust uh, about getting the vaccine, uh, even though you've been hesitant to do so. It's Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby. She is back tomorrow. Housing affordability is the number one federal election issue for GTA residents, as polled by Nanos Research. In fact, the high cost of rent and real estate is on the minds of 32% of respondents, compared with 16% who feel the pandemic 
pandemic is the biggest election issue. So which of the party leaders is offering up a real plan to bring down the cost of housing? We do have a couple of experts on the line with us or who will be on the line with us shortly. Uh, Nick Nanos at Nanos Research, who conducted the polling, and Kevin Krigger, president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. Uh, do I have anybody on the line with me now? Hi, Jane. It's Kevin Krigger. Hi, Kevin. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, are the results surprising to you? Not at all. Uh, the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board for more than 10 years has been sounding the alarm on supply in our market and really across the country. And the issue of housing affordability, we've seen really limited government intervention in anything that would sort of bolster supply, which is our really the only long-term solution to affordability. Most of what we've seen in the past has really been short-term Band-Aid-type solutions focused on artificially suppressing demand. And Treb certainly has been advocating for more than a decade to boost supply throughout the GTA. Unfortunately, we won't have Nick Nanos uh, with us, but we were running clips this morning on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane of Nick talking about how unprompted when 500 adults were called in the GTA, 32 percent of them. So one in three said that housing affordability was the main issue to them personally, the ballot box issue in the federal election, which is coming up on Monday. So let me put this out to you, Kevin, uh, not to Kevin, but to our Zoomer radio listeners before I get back to you. Uh, one in three of you out there listening feel that housing affordability is the number one federal election issue. We'd like to know why. The phone lines are open. Your personal stories, maybe it's about your children who are trying to purchase homes. A lot of Zoomers out there have children who are in that age group who simply cannot afford to buy real estate in Toronto. Lines to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Or maybe, you know, as a Zoomer, uh, and you may be a renter, and rent is becoming unaffordable uh, on a fixed income, we'd like to hear your stories as well. It's not just about home ownership. It's about the price of rent as well. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Uh, Kevin is with us. Kevin Krieger, president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. Let's talk about the various platforms, uh, Kevin. So in a nutshell, the Justin Trudeau liberals are saying that you should not lose a bidding war on your home to speculators, and you should not have to move far away from your job, your school, or your family just to afford your rent. So they are proposing a comprehensive plan, they say, to unlock home ownership, build more homes, and protect your rights. Uh, what does that mean to people looking for housing, Kevin? Well, I think it, it sounds great. And there's certainly a number of elements of the plan that we are incredibly supportive of. Um, their first home savings account that combines features of both sort of an RRSP and a TFSA to allow Canadians up to age 40 to save $40,000 towards their first home and withdraw it tax-free. Um, that certainly is a great mechanism that's available. Likewise, doubling the first-time homebuyer's tax credit, um, forcing CMHC to slash mortgage insurance rates by 25%, and also increasing the maximum, which is relevant to the GTA, uh, the cutoff for insured mortgages from a million to 1.25 million, 
and index it to inflation. Again, one of the challenges with a lot of these policy objectives is they're national. So, you know, $40,000 as a down payment savings in rural Ontario certainly goes a lot further than it does in central Toronto. And that's one of the challenges with all of the platforms is they really focus to national numbers. They don't really look at the localized nature of real estate. Ah, interesting. Okay, let's go to Paul in Norwich. Uh, he has a comment. Go ahead, Paul. Hi, Hello. Paul. Go ahead. You'll want to flip down, turn down your radio, and uh, let us know how you'd like to contribute to the conversation. Go ahead, Paul. Yes. Um, my, my big beef is the way they auction off houses. Uh, I don't know who lobbied for this, but it's been in, what, maybe... 10, 12 years, and uh, recently, we've experienced that when my son tried to buy a house, he put, he, uh, I knew the people, asked what they wanted, that's what was offered, and they said, well, they got to talk to their cousin because they're real estate, and then the cousin called and said, we have a second offer, would you like to put in another offer? I said no, and then I come to find out, I can't prove it but through conversation with people that my son's offer was the highest offer. So there's a certain amount of morality here that just doesn't seem to exist. So whichever level of government, I'm I'm assuming it's provincial, that marshals this stuff, I I just think it's wrong. You're forcing the price up through fear, Mm -hmm. not through the value of a home or, or... Whatever it's, it's trying to get every last penny out of somebody they possibly can. I, I think I, I think it's just totally wrong. Okay, Paul. Thank you for calling in. I'll get Kevin's reaction to your comments, Kevin. Well, I think with with a homeowner selling a property, I, I don't know in this instance why a homeowner would have accepted a, a lower offer from someone else necessarily, but. Um, Realtors basically represent the client whom they have a fiduciary obligation to. So there are a number of ways that homes are sold throughout the province. And, you know, sellers ultimately are the decision maker in terms of what is an acceptable offer for the sale of their home. So there's a number of strategies and techniques that exist in the market. You know, certainly some listed a price, have a period of marketing, especially in a low inventory market. Uh, the seller wants to ensure that the highest number of people see their property. And then they set a time for consideration of offers. They're reviewed with their realtor. And ultimately, the seller provides direction as to, obviously, which offer is acceptable to them. In other situations or price points, you know, property is, listed and, you know, maybe listed sort of on the higher end of value or, you know, might have been priced with an expectation that the market had moved to a position it hadn't. And in that case, you see prices ultimately that are achieved under the asking price where it's negotiated down. So there's a number of different sort of situations and methods that exist within the market. And really, it's the home seller that's in the driver's seat in terms of how they sell their largest single asset. 
But in terms of how they are advised, Kevin, and we'll get to the other uh, platforms from the other federal party leaders in a moment, uh, real estate agents are obviously there is the strategy to listing the home, especially in the city of Toronto and now in areas outside Toronto, uh, well under uh, what they're hoping to get. In some cases, 200, 300,000 below uh, what they ultimately will get by creating a bidding war. Uh, you know, would you agree that this situation has gotten out of hand when you've got 28, 30 offers on a single property and the price ends up going, it's listed for 1.1 and ends up going for 1.4? Well, I think certainly when there's a substantial delta in value, it's sort of questionable how the sort of marketing price was established. That being said, every property is unique. And the beautiful part about the real estate businesses, there's a plethora of professionals available, all of whom don't necessarily have the same advice or strategy. So the goal, obviously, or the requirement of someone representing a seller in the market is ultimately to put forward a strategy to them that will achieve the highest possible value for them in the least amount of time and with the least inconvenience to the seller, because that's ultimately the clients the realtor is representing. So very much dependent on how much inventory is available in the market, what price points are like in the market, how many comparable sales exist to sort of build a price point from. Um, I can give you an example. I listed a property recently in Vaughan uh, for lease. And we listed the property on what looks like a very hot, the very high end of value. Um, my client you know, wanted to sort of achieve the best possible rent in the market. And we prepared the property. It showed very well. There was very limited inventory when we listed the property, but we listed it with the expectation it may take some time to lease and we may need to negotiate down a little bit in value. Um, We ended up with, I believe it was 11 offers in less than 24 hours. And it actually leased for substantially more than what we were asking. And there was nothing in the market that would suggest that that was the case. Now, there hadn't been anything they had rented in the last, but we were actually shocked at the end value that was achieved. And really, it was just the lack of inventory um, in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I received some calls from some agents and also some prospective tenants who were incredibly upset, but our intention certainly was never to underlist it. And when I sort of sent off comparables to a couple of these people, they said, well, it's interesting that you ended up achieving that high price. So there are certainly those unique circumstances. But I think it also highlights the importance of engaging a professional as a buyer as well, because representing your interest, it can also sort of highlight to you what a realistic value is for the property. I have a little bit of firsthand experience uh, with a relative looking for a home in the Toronto market, being in bidding wars uh, multiple times and losing out. This whole thing with House Sigma um, and how Sigma will value a certain property at what it thinks it's going to go for. Um, What is that all about? That seems to be very much a Toronto uh, phenomenon. So House Sigma is a a broker that I'm not personally affiliated with. So I don't know a great deal about um, that. What I'm assuming you're talking about is what's called an AVM or an automated valuation model, um, 
what that essentially is, is sort of a computer-generated price. And there's a number of them that exist. A computer-generated price for a property based on a review of data for sort of relevant properties in the same geographic area, or it may be set up on various criteria. I think the challenge with ABMs is they miss a lot of the nuance that really is key in real estate. You know, you could have two properties with identical lots, identical homes that have very different levels of finish, or in some cases, very different floor plans or unique lot characteristics. So that's where having a realtor who is familiar with the market area and understands the nuanced detail of prior sales is a huge asset in developing a strategy for offering on a property and also determining its appropriate value. I'm speaking with Kevin Krieger, president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. It's Jane for Libby. And the reason we're talking about housing affordability is because it is said to be by Nick Nanos of Nanos Research, the number one ballot box issue in this federal election. We went over the liberal platform very quickly. Uh, the conservatives, um, Kevin, are saying, acknowledging the house housing crisis, the dream of owning a home slipping out of reach of Canadians, they are suggesting and promising and planning to ban foreign investors not living in or moving to Canada from buying homes, building a million homes in the next three years, creating incentives for first-time home buyers. Your thoughts on that platform? I think there are a number of elements of the Conservatives' plan that certainly we very much support. You know, building public transit infrastructure that connects homes and jobs is incredibly important. There's been substantial investment in the GTA in transit infrastructure, obviously with the Crosstown LRT, and now looking at how housing density comes to those locations where you have substantial infrastructure, I think is is key from a planning perspective. Foreign buyers are something that every party has sort of talked about to some degree or another. Um, the conservatives and liberals both have uh, suggested a, a ban on foreign participation in the market. The NDP has proposed a 20% tax. In Ontario specifically, you know, we've seen the foreign buyer tax that came into effect in 2018. At the time, it was estimated that there was about 5% foreign participation in the market. And, you know, here we are in still an affordability crisis and among the lowest inventory levels we've seen in 10 years. So clearly that hasn't been effective in our province. So I don't think on a national level that specifically is going to make a huge difference. But certainly anything that increases supply, so, you know, building a million homes um, over the next three years, they're definitely needed. But again, for a federal party or the federal government to affect the construction of a million homes, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot of direct interaction with local municipal governments to really control the issuance of building permits and are involved in planning. Right. Let's go to Teresa in St. Catharines. Uh, Teresa, you have a question or comment? Uh, yes. Um, I just wanted to speak to the point of the role of the real estate agent in the marketing of a property. Yes. I've had a recent experience in the last uh, month where I was looking for a property and it was listed at, uh, actually originally it was listed at 489 and um, uh, it didn't. Nothing happened with it, and it was one of these offers that they would accept offers within three days or something. 
and uh, nothing happened with the property. Well, they dropped the price to four hundred and ten. I believe it was for ten or four fifteen. And I went and I looked at the property, and I said, "Okay, could we contact the real estate agent representing the seller so we could ask some questions?" And when we did. Um, my agent was told by the other agent that if we weren't going to come in with an offer of 565 or more, not to bother to, to, to send an offer in. Now, my point is, is that they chose that for their marketing strategy. And, and I've owned homes and sold them. And you take advice from your real estate agent because they're the professional. Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to spend 550 or more thousand dollars on a home, I'd be looking at houses that were being marketed for 540 or 550 thousand dollars. I wouldn't be looking at a house for 400 thousand. Yeah. Well, let, let, let me put that to Ke- in the interest of time, Teresa, and I do appreciate your call. Let me put that to Kevin. Why not list homes or why not get back to listing homes at, at the price that it's valued at rather than creating this bidding war? Well, in that particular circumstance, I didn't really understand the strategy. So it was right. out at 489 and didn't sell. They lowered the price to 410 and then the expectation was 565. Sure. So why not list the house for 565 is what I'm asking. And I think it's a relevant question to ask the seller because in that particular circumstance, I don't know how necessarily not selling at a price, reducing the price further and expecting substantially more than the original price doesn't necessarily make sense. But we've definitely gotten into a culture of underlisting uh, the homes in terms of uh, what the seller ultimately wants. They're underlisting to create a frenzy. And, and I think we have in certain markets, for sure, based on the limited inventory. It was interesting. I recently listed a property, and when I spoke with the seller, I sort of gave them an opinion of value and you know, suggested that there hadn't been many recent sales in their particular community, and we should list you know, right where sort of the last sale occurred, um, but still hold offers um, for a period of time to see if the market had moved up. And, you know, the seller was sort of hesitant and said, well, you know, don't we have to list $100,000 below value? And I said, well, no. Mm -hmm. I said, in this instance, you know, there's not been a lot that's traded. You definitely have, you know, a great property. So let's list where the previous sale occurred and we'll see what, the market appreciation, if any, has been. And we did end up only with two offers on the property. Um, it obviously set a new price level because it, it did ultimately achieve higher than the previous sale. But again, we didn't have a lot to go off of, but we did have a strong sort of starting point. Okay. So I think, you know, sellers are incredibly intelligent people, as are the professionals they work with. I think to look at you, individual circumstance, it's hard for me to sort of give commentary, not knowing anything about the property or situation. But, you know, from a seller's perspective, having a conversation around, you know, what the intrinsic value is based on comparables and sort of working upwards from, you know, market appreciation. We've seen periods in our market where we've had a jump of 20% in a short period of time. Um, That's hard to account for if you're looking at comparables that are six months old. 
We did not get yet, and we'll do it very quickly in the interest of time, since I still have another segment to go here before one, Kevin, and I do appreciate your time. Uh, The New Democrats, they plan to build over 500,000 units of affordable housing, give immediate relief to renters who need it, stop big money investors from driving up housing costs. If, if, uh, And I'll just get you to have a final word on this. In terms of housing affordability as the big issue in the GTA, uh, how would you best advise people to vote or to go about being educated on housing affordability uh, in coming up with how you plan to cast your ballot? I think, you know, everyone obviously has to make a conscious decision in analyzing the platforms of all parties. I would say delve deeper into any sort of buzzword elements of the platform and really see what those things mean. Um, The New Democrats obviously Building 500,000 affordable homes in 10 years is something that we wholeheartedly support. Um, they also have talked about working in partnership with provinces and municipalities to build capacity for social community and affordable housing providers uh, to provide rental support. There are a number of, of great initiatives they've come up with as well. Obviously, going after big money investors um, in their mind is putting in a, a 20% foreign buyer tax. Um But I think, you know, looking at the platforms holistically, also understanding the role of the federal government, um, because a number of the platforms do substantially overreach the traditional role of the federal government. So to enact a lot of these policies, there's going to have to be a huge level of collaboration at the municipal and provincial level. Right. Um, But I think for voters, the, the key really is educating yourself and really reading the platforms in greater detail and avoiding the buzzword elements of them and digging deeper into the policy objectives. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Kevin Krieger is president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. Jane for Libby and still to come on Fight Back. Raising awareness about the damage to global bird populations, which can be largely avoided. We'll tell you how next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host James Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. From September 27th to October 3rd, teams from around the world will be patrolling the areas around buildings looking for birds that have collided with windows. It's all part of the Global Bird Rescue, and it's being organized by a group out of Toronto. They're trying to continue to raise awareness about the damage to global bird populations from bird collisions with reflective windows on high-rises and homes that are largely preventable. Michael Masur is the co-founder of FLAP, Fatal Light Awareness Program, and joins us now on Fight Back. Welcome back, Michael. I know I've spoken with you before. Yes, thank you very much. Give us an update. What is going on now to bring down the global bird populations? Right. There, birds are being faced with a whole gamut of stresses from Habitat loss, uh, pesticide use, uh, and cats uh, are also one of, if not the leading cause of bird death across North America, with buildings uh, being a very close second. So uh, with that uh, and just statistics showing that bird populations are plummeting all over North North America at an alarming rate, we really do have to pay very close attention to these issues. So what have we seen in Toronto, for example, with window crashes? Right. So if we look at the city of Toronto, um, the estimate 
estimation of uh, bird strikes that can occur in any given city like Toronto is anywhere from one to 10 birds per structure each year. Now, if you look at the city of Toronto, there's well over a million structures uh, in the Toronto area that birds have the potential to collide with, which makes an astronomical number just for Toronto alone. And you can very quickly understand then why this, this issue of bird collisions is such a, a great concern among conservation groups and and government agencies. And when is it happening, Michael? So these are during migration periods. Is it primarily during the day, at night? How does the light contrast uh, fit into this phenomenon? Right. When you look at, uh, there, there are actually two issues that are occurring. There are birds that uh, during the migration seasons uh, can be attracted to bright lights escaping from tall structures, like we will see in the city of Toronto. Um, when that occurs, they can find themselves then trapped within, uh, within those dense city areas the day breaks, and then the birds have to then contend with all the glass within that, that built environment. Again, this is not limited to Toronto. This isn't limited to dense urban centres. This can happen right up there in, in Algonquin Park with a, a little cabin that might be sitting on a lake. Anywhere you have glass has the potential to kill birds. Uh, as a result, as a result of those collisions, but the awareness of the special windows uh, has been on the rise and growing in popularity. In fact, there are bylaws for new buildings in Toronto to have the proper kinds of windows to deter birds from flying into them. Correct. Yeah, the city of Toronto was the first city in the world to introduce mandatory requirements, uh, bird-friendly mandatory requirements for for low, mid, and high-rise construction. And if you get a chance, just Keep your eyes open when you're, when you're walking around the city. You'll be amazed at the number of structures that now have special markers on those windows that cover the entire surface area in an effort to reduce bird strikes uh, during, during the daytime. And this is spreading to other areas. This is now in the city of Markham, the city of Vaughan. We're seeing similar things happen in Ottawa, Calgary, Vancouver. Uh, this is really growing its momentum. Very important that this be taking place. And so to explain how the windows are treated in such a way that they deter the birds uh, from moving in that direction. Right. A, a great way to kind of give this some perspective. Uh, look at a, 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 an entranceway to a mall or even look at a bus shelter. You will notice that there is something at our eye level that alerts us to the presence of that glass. It could be a row of decals. It could be a series of stripes. Um, we need to extend the same courtesy to birds, but we need to cover the entire surface of that glass area with markers. So if you look closely, a, a great example is a dotted pattern that's become quite popular here in Toronto, yes. where you have quarter-inch uh, dots spaced two inches apart vertically and horizontally that cover the entire surface. And, and that, that spacing of marker is enough to alert birds to the presence of that glass but it doesn't obscure our ability to see through the glass, nor is it aesthetically unappealing. It's actually, in some cases, it can be quite attractive, depending on the building design. I agree. So um, yeah. my, my son's condo building, which is relatively new, uh, has uh, the dots on the windows, and, and it does look really nice. Yes, yes. And, and this has been one of the, the key factors that has made this a struggle. People perceive what we were proposing as a threat to the architectural integrity of a building. But they're learning very quickly that once these markers are up, it really is not having that threat. Now, explain to us what the Global Bird Rescue is all about, and that takes place from September 27th to October 3rd. Right. A Global Bird Rescue is uh, a community-based event where we're asking people from all over the world during that seven-day period, you just go out into your community 
and keep your eyes peeled for birds that you might see on your way to work. Um, you could even do this at your home or your cottage. If you happen to have a bird that collides with a window at your home, take the time to enter that record into what we call the Global Bird Collision Mapper. It's a, a web-based app. Uh, right now, we have close to 67,000 entries um, from across the world. Uh, and all that data is called community science. All that, all that information is really invaluable. There, there's so many ways that we can use that data to be able to better understand the issue and how we can identify buildings that are having a bad collision problem. We can identify the areas around that building that need the greatest uh, need for applications and provide that information to the building owner or operator uh, to apply markers to those facades. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, so even just finding one bird that's collided, uh, going into the, the database, you could start to see some trends developing. Definitely. In fact, one bird entered in the mapper could very well be a listed species. And right now, there are laws, both in the province of Ontario and across the country, that it is now actually illegal to harm or kill a migratory bird, whether it be unintentional or intentional, as a result of a collision with a window. Now, that means in some shape or form, we're probably all breaking the law, but it's really designed for those structures that are having a significant bird collision problem and aren't doing anything to mitigate that threat. And the mapper is, is actually very quickly uh, demonstrating there are a lot of buildings out there killing hundreds of birds that have the means to be able to fix that problem and aren't making that effort. How do we get involved? Uh, the website to go to? Right. There's, there's a couple of websites. First, our, our initial website, flap.org, filled with all kinds of information on tips, resources on how to mitigate the threat. There is globalbirdrescue.org, which is specifically for the event of Global Bird Rescue. It gives you how to register um, all the materials you need to go out into your community to look for birds. And then we have another website called birdsafe.ca, which is more for the corporate sector, providing tips on how to build new buildings and uh, work with assessing their buildings on how to reduce those strikes. Really interesting uh, and an amazing effort. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. Thank you so much. Michael Massour is the co-founder of FLAP, the Fatal Light Awareness Program. Jane for Libby, she returns tomorrow with Free For All Friday. Bob Comsick has the news next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.